Well, once more, it's a privilege to stand up here, and uh, we're just glad for each one that's here and what we've learned so far, the wonderful inspiration we've had. I want to keep emphasizing that we are to be unashamed workmen, and I'd like to quote together that verse, study to show thyself. Let's all do it together. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Let's just bow our heads for a minute. We feel the need of the Lord. Lord, we need you every hour. We need you now. We need you every day and through all the duties of life all the temptations, all the needs. We pray for your presence as we begin this little study. We pray you'll touch each heart. I pray that you'll enable me to speak words of wisdom, words of praise and glory to your holy name, that we as humans would not receive glory, for we know that we're not worthy, but you're worthy, Heavenly Father. We just Turn to you in thanksgiving for being with us thus far. Be with us yet, Heavenly Father. You've promised to be with us, and we claim that promise today. May your name be honored. May each one here be benefited. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We have another song we'd like to sing, number 526. This is sort of, it came to me during the night that I hadn't even thought of this poem. And it's so pertinent to our, our subject. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glory shines through endless days. Now this hymn, 526, is an old tune. It's a tune I remember singing when I was young, when I was a boy. We don't sing it much anymore. And we didn't sing it exactly like this either. You know how it is when uh, church people that sing fairly slowly, kind of those tunes kind of evolve. And so I hope that, I hope that we can sing this uh, the way it's written, with reverence. Don't try to Follow the notes at the expense of the words, because that's not right, and yet we want to follow the notes too. Uh, this is um, by Lowell Mason, the, uh, the tune, and he wrote quite a few of our tunes. I don't really know who Joseph Grigg was, but he has written this in 1765. That's quite a while ago. And uh, so it's an old song, old words, and uh, a more recent tune by Noel Mason. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Uh, 
brother spoke about being embarrassed about reading the Bible. He didn't have anything to be ashamed of, did he? Not really. There's a time in our lives when we sometimes suffer through some of that. But I know that there are some readings that we should be ashamed of. I would be ashamed for people to find me reading some of the things I've read in the past. Even some magazines and things that I wouldn't want people to come in like they're at the hospital. There are lots of magazines in the waiting rooms. And I go around and water the plants at the various waiting rooms. And it's kind of a temptation to open up those magazines. They're so colorful and so vivid. And they show people. But I wouldn't want people to come in there and see me reading those magazines when I'm supposed to be watering the plants. Not that that would be such a problem, but the very fact of reading the things of the world. But remember, young people, someone is coming into the room. Someone's already there. Someone knows what we're reading and what we're watching and what we're looking at. He knows all about it. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're looking for, what we're longing for. And if we would be ashamed to have someone see us reading something, let's remember God's already there. And we don't want Him to be ashamed of us. It says, And oh, this, may this my glory be that Christ is not ashamed of me. We just trust that will be fulfillment, that He will not be ashamed of us. If we're not ashamed of Him in this life, He will own us in the life to come. We have for a subject under that unashamed workman category about the reading. And there's so much about this. I, I've actually chosen quite a few things that, that refer to practical reading, learning to read well and that sort of thing. But I know there's a deeper meaning and I want to touch on that too. And that is what we read. And that we read something that's building, something that's worthwhile. And shun the things that are maybe kind of attractive and kind of fun to read. But God would not be pleased with those things. I believe our brother's message was such an introduction. The message on truth, because that's what, what we are be, will be reading when we read the Word of God, is we'll be reading truth. And we need to read truth. We need to read things that are true. The Word of God, he said, is profitable. The Word of God says that, and he repeated the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what we're talking about. That's the most important reading we can have, and that's the Word of God. I would like a volunteer among the young brethren here to read this scripture that's listed here. Luke 4, 14 to 32. If you'll just stand and read that. Luke 4, verse 14 to 32. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Go ahead. Read clear through verse 32. It's quite a ways here. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day 
is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? And all bear him witness, and wonder at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the days of Elias, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Good, thank you. This was in Jesus' own town. And he said, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own town, in his own country. He's not without honor, except there. And we see that in our time even. It seems like the home brethren don't always uh, find acceptance as well as someone that comes through and tells it a little different. And um, We're kind of glad for that in a way, but it is a truth. Jesus got into trouble here, but he was ready for it. It says in he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. It was not his time, not even his time to be taken. And uh, so, But we, we see here that he went to the synagogue and he stood up to read. That's our subject. Jesus read. We're going to talk about reading. In uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, um, I have it here, but I want to read a little more than that. It says, Till I come, give attendance to reading to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear me. Hear thee. I'm sure Paul meant the reading of the prophets and the scriptures. I have that here. The sacred histories of the Old Testament. But Titus and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, where we find this, were the last ones, if I understand right, were the last ones to be written. So they may have also had some of Paul's own writings. They may have had the Gospels, at least the first three. Uh, I'm not sure about the timing of all this. But he wasn't talking about just any old reading. He was talking about reading the scriptures. Reading the Word of God, reading the truth of God. It's a wonderful privilege to read, and reading is a gift, although it does have to be practiced too. Most of the gifts are that way, aren't they? You know, God gives us things, but He expects us to develop and to exercise that gift so that it can be useful. And this is certainly true with reading. We don't just all of a sudden know how to read. We know that. You have to study, you have to practice, you have to kind of know the, the rules. And we're going to talk some about that. But remember, the reading that we want to recommend is good reading. We're not just talking about any old reading. We want to give some warnings, too, about that. But reading is a privilege to be educated to read. Um, We talk a lot about Haiti in this because of the recent disaster, but some of us have been there, and they say that half of the Haitians cannot read. Maybe that's changing now because I think more and more they're getting better schools. But... It's a real handicap. It doesn't mean that they're 
intelligent, not intelligent, because we saw many intelligent young men there. And I think I've noted it here. There are some very sharp teachers. When we were down there, we were supposed to be teaching the teachers and the pastors. And we were working through interpreters. And these young fellows were sitting on the edge of their benches and they were listening. They were also checking the interpreter. I think some of them knew a good bit of English. And they could tell if that interpreter said it wrong. And uh, they uh, got pretty excited sometimes when it wasn't told just right. But they were very sharp. And uh, it isn't because they're uh, not intelligent that they can't read. And so let's remember that. We've been given the advantage of learning to read. The purpose of the reading in the past, and that was to read the Word of God. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I do. And thank you for reminding me. We're going to follow that, too. Thank you, Pete. Don't get old. (laughs) Yes, these uh, handouts, I'll be following these pretty well. I've already got down to the... The second point in the first general heading, the privilege of the gift of reading. To read the Word of God, they recognized the importance of reading the Word of God. And this is the reason. This was the reason they gave in colonial days for teaching their children to read. They didn't have as good as schools or as complete as schools. I shouldn't say they didn't have as good as schools because they had schools and individuals that taught the Word of God well. But uh, the reason for teaching to read was so they could read the Word of God. Our third point there is the privilege to look ahead, to evaluate, to read some of the prophecies, and to, to know what may be coming on the world. I know we don't all agree about just everything that's coming on the world, but if you can't read, you won't even have that uh, information about the prophecies. You need to look ahead. And I have a little story about looking ahead. Um, when, my, when, when I lived in Modesto, California, we lived in the rural area. Now it's all built up in city. But my older brother and myself and my two cousins were all kind of stair steps. My brother Joe was the oldest. And then there was I was the second to the youngest. But anyway, the two older ones were um, in school and they decided that going home from school, they'd walk backwards. You know how boys are. They were going to walk backwards, all the way home. It wasn't too far. <clears throat> but you're familiar with, uh, with irrigation in Washington, and we had to irrigate in California, and there were irrigation systems. And uh, at one point, along where we walked, was a, a big 36-inch uh, culvert that went down to the pipelines that were carried the water down below, and you could look down in there and see the water. Well, as these boys were walking backwards, my brother hit that with the back of his knees and he simply fell over into that culvert, but he happened to catch himself with his, with his knees. And there he was hanging. He couldn't get up. And if it wouldn't have been for uh, the other student there helping him up, he'd have been in serious trouble. But he did help him out. But I had to think, we don't want to walk backwards. We want to look ahead. We want to have the information in the Word of God so that we can look ahead and walk in the right way. Uh, Even the one that was with him was walking backwards. He could have said, Joe, there's a culvert over there. Don't walk backwards anymore. But he wasn't looking either. And so we not only have responsibility to, to look ahead as we walk, we have responsibility to warn others when we see they might be headed for trouble. We are our brother's keeper, aren't we? I wanted to tell some stories about, I have it noted here, two late readers. There were these I read about, never met them, of course, but the first was a man named Mr. Barr. And I know about him through a a tape that I heard of him. Um, He was talking, speaking at a graduation ceremony. So we know he was a fine teacher. He was a respected teacher, or they would never have had him speaking at this graduation ceremony. But his youth was not the same as as his adulthood. When he first started in school, he couldn't get started. 
And it was because that his folks moved around so much. He went from one school to another. I don't know how many schools, but he was not allowed to stay in one place. And as a result, he didn't get taught very well. And uh, I think his father was maybe in the military. I'm not real sure. But they did move around from place to place. And the teachers kind of got um, tired of trying to move him along. And they'd put him over in the corner and give him a coloring book and a bunch of colors and let him do that. And this went on and on until he was actually in the seventh grade and he said, I could not read. I was in the seventh grade and I could not read. I mean, he said, I could not read the simplest books, even those that the first graders start with. But he said in the seventh grade, he met a teacher who loved him. And he taught him, she taught him in one year to read. To read well, he said, I could go anywhere in books. Wonderful privilege to read. There was another man that also was a late reader. This man was in slavery. I think, uh, let's see, I have his date here. He was born in 1851, so he probably wasn't very old when the slaves were freed, but he spent his childhood in slavery, and slaves were not allowed to learn to read. It wasn't, they didn't want them to be educated. If they were educated, then they might rebel and take leadership and get out from under their slavery. They didn't have pockets in their, in their garments because they weren't supposed to own anything or carry anything. And this, this man was uh, one that maybe you've heard of, Charles Albert Tindley. He wrote some songs. But he was 17 before he learned to read. And he would go along the road, and since he didn't have any pockets, he'd have to hold them. He'd pick up scraps of, of uh, reading, and he would try to figure out what the words meant. And he was almost taught himself. I think he did get into a church where the sisters helped him to learn to read, but he was 17 before he could read. He said, I couldn't spell cat. But he became a very famous colored man. He was a big man. But he always remained, remained humble. And he wrote the song, you probably have sung it even, Take Your Burden to the Lord and Leave It There. Charles, Robert, Charles, uh, Tindley, Charles Albert Tindley wrote that. And he became a very effective minister. He had a church of, I think, 10,000 people. And uh, he really made a name for himself. When he died, thousands were at his funeral. We don't hear much about him, but this was quite a while ago, but he remained a very humble man. And someone at one point told him, of course, he'd just come out of slavery. They said, Charles, you're nothing. They wanted to belittle him, I guess. And he had a good answer. He said, I'm nothing. I know I'm nothing. But if the one who knows everything wants to use someone who knows not, who is nothing, that's his business. And the Lord used him mightily. He wrote that song and he wrote about 50 songs. I don't know which the others would be, but I think there was one that we sing some. Um, anyway, this was a good one. Reading is basic to other learning. I think teachers especially realize that. Um, if, a, if a student is not a good reader, he has trouble in every single area. It just doesn't work too well. And so reading is basic. It's a cornerstone of this building that we're trying to build as we educate children. I have a poem I'd like to read here, and I know it's kind of, it's not really for young people, it's for children. And maybe the children here that are here maybe can um, understand it a little bit. But I'd like to point out a couple of things before I read it. This mentions sounding out words. You know, we have a little difficulty sometimes in the Bible, especially with the names, but sounding out these words. And there are uh, rules of pronunciation that we can follow and learn. And like I said before, this takes practice. It doesn't happen immediately. But in this poem, it says, I'm learning. Um, I can sound out the words. And I know all my short vowels and my long vowels, too. You see, all of these are important when we try to sound out words and learn to pronounce them correctly. This is the poem. I can read. I can read. I can read. I can sound out the words. I'm so happy I almost could fly with the birds. 
I'm learning by leaps and I'm learning by bounds. I know every one of my consonant sounds. I know all my short vowels and long vowels too. It seems all the world is shining and new. If I go to town with my dad any day, I look at the signs and I know what they say. I've seen all those signs. I knew they were there, but now I can read them. I'm walking on air. I can read in the books Mom read last year to me. Now I know all those words, just as plain as can be. I'm delighted, excited. I'm happy indeed because I can read. I can read. I can read. Wonderful thing. And somehow we need to get the enthusiasm for reading. And that's just a child's version, I know. But maybe you can get a little touch of enthusiasm from that because it's a wonderful privilege and it's something that we can really use and really enjoy if we get into it. On the other hand, are we good listeners? It's only fair to listen when someone else talks or someone else reads. We have a brother in our congregation that's very quiet. And I said something like this one time in, uh, in speaking. I said, it's too bad that most of us are kind of waiting to talk as someone else is talking. We're waiting to get our words in, you know. And uh, he came to me after that and he said, you know, I don't feel like that applies to me. He's a quiet man. And he said, I don't feel that I have to do that. And I just commended him for it. And I just feel like it's one thing I'd like to learn in this week of of Bible study to be a better listener. I'd like to learn that because preachers aren't very good listeners. (laughs) They they really aren't because they they think of something they've said time and time again and they want to get it in there. We're just not very good listeners, but we need to listen. It's only fair because others need to talk too. Well, why read well? What difference does it make? We know it does make a difference. What is the definition of good reading? And I'll have a little contest here, Nehemiah 8.8. I'd like the first one that can find it to stand up and read it. Of the students, of course. Nehemiah 8.8. Good. So they read in the book of the wall and God of God distinctly, and gave the fish and caused them to understand the reading. Right. Now the setting here was when Nehemiah brought the people back to uh, or came himself. I guess Ezra had really brought them back, but they were restoring the worship of the the Savior of the of God. And they were wanting to read the law. And they made special provisions. We're not going to go into that, but you can read about this. I think they had a a stand raised up where someone could stand. And they read that way. They read distinctly. They gave the understanding. And that's the way we need to read. That's a good definition of good reading. Better vocabulary. We know one brother. It's father of one of our students here has a good vocabulary because he reads a lot. He says some words sometimes that as we listen, we... Now, what what does that word mean exactly now? We've heard it before, but we need to use a dictionary to look it up sometimes. Well, that we don't have to use such uh, foreign words to really get a point across. I'm not saying that, but it's good to know good new words and to learn good vocabulary, knowledge of Scripture and of history Unless we can read well and read with the understanding, we don't get very far in history and even in the Scriptures. We need to apply ourselves to do that and we need to practice our reading to to make it easier to join in conversation and communicate. You've probably all experienced a little bit of of, um, maybe not quite worthy or not quite knowledgeable enough to enter in conversation When our brother Roman was speaking last night, he was telling us such deep things and things that he had studied that I hardly wanted to comment for fear I'd appear kind of unlearned and foolish. Maybe you've been in that situation. All of us can can probably testify to that. But don't uh, let that harm you too much. Just get in and study to learn to converse and learn to communicate. Following directions. We have a saying, if all else fails, 
read the directions. Well, if you can read well, you can read directions well. And I can remember when I was selling hardware, we sold wheelbarrows. And they didn't come assembled. They come all broken down. And uh, you have to assemble a wheelbarrow in the right order. Or if you don't, you kind of have to start over and get it done right. Well, one time I had a, uh, not a wheelbarrow, but a, I think it was a tape player. And we were having trouble getting that thing started. And I turned to the directions and they were in Spanish. And I, couldn't, I didn't get a thing out of them. But anyway, we have the directions. We have the directions in our own language. It's not in a language we don't understand. But we can read the Word of God and we can know. Not just assembling a wheelbarrow, but assembling our lives and learning to glorify God and learning this art, this gift of reading. Our deacons read the Scripture kind of like you're used to, I guess. And uh, unless they can read it well, standing in front of a crowd, it's sometimes kind of a of an embarrassment to him. We had one deacon brother some years ago that uh, was chosen and he felt like he wasn't a very good reader and he would call up the minister and say, what is the chapter for tomorrow? He said, I want to practice. But he's a good reader now and he doesn't have to do that anymore. Read with expression. It's so much better for those listening. Um, But don't overdo it. You know, some people try to read with so much expression that it almost sounds unnatural. Well, there is a way to read well uh, for the listener's uh, enjoyment. Read for pleasure. Really, enjoyment is a better word to use there. Read for your enjoyment. But there's a lot of reading, and I want to get into that a little later, too. There's a lot of reading that probably our carnal minds and our flesh would enjoy a lot. But it's not good for us. Read the Bible. I have a picture here from our newspaper. Just wanted to show it. Can you read it? Do you feel the need to read? Of course, that's referring to the newspaper. An advertisement for reading the newspaper. I had to think so. Do you feel the need to read? Do you feel the need to read the Bible? I hope we do. Because it's the Word of God. It's where we find our our directions it's, our, uh, it's the Word of God. It's the truth, as we've heard. Have a time, a place, a system. Oh dear, I have another thing to pass out. Um, I have a system, and it's not original with me, but it's a system that I've used for years and years. And there are good things about this system, and there are kind of drawbacks about this system. And I, I'll just... Uh, give you these and uh, you can just pass them down or pass them out if you'd like. You probably have uh, heard a lot about a system of reading the Bible through in one year. And I know that's good. I I don't want to criticize that at all. But this system goes through the Bible, probably parts of it in more like three times in a year. Parts of it would probably be just once a year. But Um, It's broken down into uh, ten ten areas of the Bible. And you can see them. The first is Genesis to Deuteronomy. The next is Joshua to 2 Kings. And right on down. And the point is to read a chapter from that category each morning. So what you're reading is ten chapters from ten different places in the Bible each morning. Well, that's quite a bit of reading, but after all, if we're going to spend an hour in the Word of God and in prayer, then there's plenty of time to do this. And I have done this for years, even when I was teaching school and I felt like I didn't have extra time. This is worthwhile getting the time in the Word of God. Now, I said there were some drawbacks to this. There are some because you can read, if you're not careful, you can read this just as a goal to read it and maybe not understand it. I sometimes read down a column and I think, I'm thinking about something else. So I have to go back and I have to reread to get the message. That would be probably one drawback, although that's a, that's a fault in any reading. That could happen any time, I suppose. But also, I think that sometimes it's a good idea to read a whole book, like all of Hebrews or all of one of the Gospels or all of John's writings. I think that has virtue. And maybe you could take a break from this to do that. Or maybe you could add this, add your reading of a whole book to this system. 
I'm not sure how you'd like to do that. But even um, regulating the amounts of that are included in these areas here, you can even adjust that a little bit. I've adjusted it for my own self because I have 11 categories now because I kind of thought that if I skip a day or if I... Um, I have 11 to kind of make up 10 average on the day. Anyway, you can do that as you like. After all, these things, when, when uh, we're thinking about the worship of God, we want to not just to follow a system or what someone else says, but follow your heart and, and read what God lays on your heart, the system to use. A time and a place. I like early morning. Believe it or not, I like the kitchen table. I have a, a study. I have a nice desk. I have a good light over my desk. But sometimes it's kind of cool in there in the winter time, and I like to get out in the kitchen with my back to the fire or the kitchen stove. And it's one of the best parts of the day for me. I just recommend it. Even when you have other things to do. When I was teaching school... I'm not bragging, dear ones, I'm not bragging, but I would like to get up at four o'clock and start reading because I had a lot of papers to correct, a lot of study to do, a lot of lessons to plan and that sort of thing. But you can work it in because it's worthwhile to read the Word of God and concentrate on it and let it rule your life, let it give you uh, inspiration for the day. You know these things. Good books to read. God's Word is first. And the story of a slave learned to read is in one of our readers. This uh, young man was a slave and he didn't know how to read, but the, the master's son, I believe, got to teaching him. And he wasn't supposed to do this, but it was kind of fun for him too. And this slave learned to read. And when he learned to read the Word of God, he was convicted. He wanted to share this. And so he got so that he would go on a Sunday over to a neighboring plantation. They kind of had the Sundays off, apparently, at this time, in that place anyway. And he would go over and preach the gospel in this neighboring plantation. And they listened. Because they were hungry for the Word of God. They were in, in terrible uh, poverty and, and oppression. And the Word of God gave them something to hope for. And so he would do this. And his master, I don't remember whether it was the father of this boy that taught him. I don't think so. I think maybe it was a little later. But anyway, his master got word of this. And he said, Sammy, I hear you've been going out to the neighboring plantation to teach him God's Word. He said, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to tie you to that tree over there and give you a weapon. Well, Sammy went next Sunday. And he preached at the plantation next to him. Of course, the master heard about it, and he did tie him to the tree, and he did give him a whipping. He said, maybe that'll teach you not to go. Well, the next Sunday, Sammy went again. And he told those people, he said, I may have to suffer another whipping when I get back home. But he said, I, it won't be as much as what Jesus suffered for me, and I've got to tell you. And he kept doing this. He got another whipping. And finally, he persisted. Finally, the master says, Why do you have to keep on doing this? Don't you know that I'm going to keep on whipping you? Anyway, he didn't stop. But something happened to that master. And one of the helpers came running out to Sammy one day in the field. He said, Come, Sammy, the master needs you. He came in and the master was almost helpless. And he said, Sammy, pray for me. I don't know whether he had a heart attack or a stroke or what, but he was almost helpless and dying. He figured he was dying. Sammy said, I've been praying for you all along. And he prayed for him there. And the master did recover. But he said, Sammy, I'm giving you papers to free you. And you go preach to those people just as much as you want to. Wonderful example. Would we do it? Would we preach the word to neighbors if we knew it meant a flogging when we got home? Well, people have done it down through the ages. 
The martyrs did it anyway. They didn't stop teaching. They didn't stop serving the Lord just because they meant they were going to die. Daniel didn't stop praying because he knew it was going to be the lion's den. It's been an example down through the ages. And we have that heritage, dear ones. If only we can get that spirit, we probably won't have to suffer like that in this country of freedom. But we need that same spirit. We need that same hope. We need that same service of our Lord who died for us. Shed His blood that we might be cleansed. I don't know for sure if that story was true about Sammy. You know, I'm kind of a questioning person. As I read, I think, now, is this true or isn't it true? And it probably was. I don't know for sure. But, you know, I had to think, isn't that better reading than some reading where it would be satisfaction only to the flesh? You know, Jesus told parables, and I think an awful lot of them were actually things that happened, but probably a good many of them were things that would happen. And this is something that could happen. And so I'd like, I'd like your, a little bit of discussion on this. Do you think that we have to be sure that a story is true before we read it? Because we read a lot of stories. I'm going to mention some that, that I know didn't actually happen, but true to life. Do you have any ideas on this? What do you think? Is it worthwhile to read a story like that? Yes, Brother Owen. Let's answer that question with another question. Were there parables that Jesus taught everyone a real happening? I don't think so. No? <laughs> and so if it's proper... Mm-hmm. to engage our imagination into something of good moral it has to be good right thank you That that's right it has to be good if it's going to be profitable it can't be something that draws our minds away from the Lord um, but I think a story like that is inspirational to me I know from um, Revelation 12 We hear quite a bit about Revelation 12 in our congregation because it's a very vivid picture in heaven that uh, this child was born, born of the woman, and the, the dragon tried to eliminate that child. And we know the history that fits that so well. But then it seems that the, the war in heaven resulted in the dragon being cast out and him bringing that war into the world here. That's the way it kind of reads to me. You can read that a little better. But it says in verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Maybe you, some of you older brethren know exactly what that means. I can have to say that I don't know for sure. I have my ideas too, but that's not the point here. And the serpent cast out of his mouth, out of his mouth, water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. What comes out of the mouth of the serpent? That's what I'm interested in now. I think it's a flood of evil books. I think it's a flood of stuff that, that tempts us to read and is not worthwhile. In fact, it's very, very damaging. But it goes on to say, and the earth helped the woman. That's kind of an interesting statement because the earth doesn't usually help the woman. But how did the earth help the woman? The earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, I don't know if I'm right on this. I'm going to tell you what it means to me. It doesn't mean that the earth swallowed up everything so that the woman didn't have any trouble anymore with the, the books that weren't good. But I believe it means that since the earth was, had an appetite for this thing, it was immediately identified as something that belonged to the world. 
At least, if that's not the meaning there, at least we can identify the unclean literature that possibly comes out of the mouth of the dragon because there's lots of poor, poor literature. Let's leave that. I don't want to dwell on a lot of negative things here, but that was a passage that I kind of had to, to, uh, to understand in my own way. The classics of the past. I have Pilgrim's Progress listed first. And it's a wonderful reading. It's probably not very popular anymore, but at one time it was the wide, wild, widest book read besides the Bible. And it may still be, I don't know. But uh, sort of doubt it. But uh, The Pilgrim's Progress is a classic, and it's a wonderful writing. And I just wanted to mention a couple of incidents from that, because I think this might show the value of it. At one time, Pilgrim and... Was it faithful? They were traveling together and they got off the road. They got into a byway. And before long, they were captured by giant despair. These are figurative things. Despair. Think about that. A giant despair captured them and put them in his prison. And he beat them unmercifully time and time again. Put them in the dungeon and they just about died. And to make it kind of short... Pilgrim realized, he said, I actually have something that's going to open the doors of the giant's dungeon. And what was that key that he had? Do you remember? Promise. The key was promise. And they opened those doors and got out simply. The giant couldn't reach them. That was one that I I remember and that does me a lot of good. We don't have to remain in despair. We have the... The promises of God that can get us out of that dungeon and put us on our way again. Then there was another one. I guess it was earlier in in Pilgrim's uh, journey when he came to the cross. And it's wonderful what he said there. I kind of copied it off from my memory. He gave three leaps. And he said, Henceforth did I come loaden with my sin, nor could I ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the load fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it from to me crack? Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. He says blessed sepulcher because he saw that load that was on his back, that load of sin, tumble and roll into the sepulcher and he saw it no more. So he says blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. Yea, rather, blessed be the man that there was put to shame for me. Put to shame. Can we be unashamed workmen because Jesus was put to shame for us? Does it make sense? Is it worthwhile? Does it count? Yes, to me it does. That's one of just a few of the incidents in Pilgrim's Progress. There are many other good books. I have a whole volume of books called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I haven't read that volume. I think maybe once when I was young I started and read part of it. But that is a reading that you probably wouldn't want to wade through. But it is very informative and it's a classic of the past by uh, Edward Gibbon. There are better ones, probably a little more recent. Um, Needs theological works, probably would be profitable. Am I my people? Those are our books from Brethren History. Um, then there are more current writers. We have a book called <clears throat> Night Scenes in the Bible by Daniel March. And I had this book on hand for quite a while. A man gave it to me and we just kind of put it on the shelf. You know how you do sometimes. And one time we were having a little camping trip and we thought, well, take that book along in our, the darkness of our tent with just a flashlight to read by. We read some of those night scenes, and they were very, very profitable. If you get a hold of that book, I think you'll enjoy it. There was one about the dungeon where Peter and Paul, both the Mamertine prison, where they were imprisoned, and, and a story written about that. E.M. Um, Bounds on prayer. We have a couple of books. I actually have the complete works of E.M. Bounds on prayer. And I haven't got through that yet, but that's one of the books I would sure like to read. And then current writers. Um, Violet Miller is a 
young lady we know, a young Mennonite sister that is a mother, and uh, she was a teacher in Sacramento, teacher of Russian in the Russian schools there. But she has written a beautiful story called Never Alone, and it's Galena's story. She was a Russian woman that came through a lot of persecution and a lot of trouble, and it's a worthwhile reading. Rebecca Martin is an old order Mennonite sister. She's a good writer. She writes some of these books that probably wouldn't be true that actually happened, but they're very true to life. And she gets in some wonderful spiritual teaching in those. Old Order Mennonite or not, I don't care. She knows what she's talking about and she gives us so many good inspirational things in these books. I'll just read off a few of the titles. Valley Farm, Singing Mountains, Pepper in Her Pie, The Shepherd's Staff, A Very Fruitful Hill, Cedarbrook Pebbles, and I'm sure there are others. How many know that writer, that group of books? You do? Okay. Yeah, you do, Sarah. Okay. Um, I could recommend them. They're, they're, they're really interesting to read. They might be called uh, pleasure reading, but they have a good lesson. And they don't have a lot of the worldly uh, comments that uh, you find in modern writers that are not Christian. Vera Overholt has written her scrapbooks. She's written hymns. She has now just finished, I believe, the Hostetler story, which was a story of a Mennonite family that the Indians came and, and immediately killed the mother and the daughter and one of the sons. And this Hostetler and two of his sons were captured by the Indians and they were with them for a long time. And this tells their story. Very good story. We have it as a short story in one of our readers, but she has made it into a book. Uh, Donald Dernbaugh. Um, how many of you know that name? Donald Dernbaugh. Some of you older ones do. He was probably the authority on Brethren history. He's gone now, but he was the leader when we went to uh, Europe on a Brethren history tour. So we got to hear some of his uh, teaching and we have his books. One of them is European Origins of the Brethren and the other is uh, the Brethren in Colonial America. Both of those would be good reading if you want to get some Brethren history. And after all, it's our heritage. Not that it's the only thing that you can read, but if you want to know where we came from and what our heritage is and what the Brethren have gone through, read those books. The uh, um, European Origins of the Brethren is actually, uh, his wife was a native German and she was, it was her language. So they could go to some of the old records and very carefully interpret them uh, because she was such a knowledge, knowledgeable person in the German language. Stephen Scott is an old order um, River Brethren writer. He's written some books on the Amish. He's written the book called Dress Speaks. And he's a very spiritual minded man, too. He was not raised in the old order uh, River Brethren, but he is a dear brother. Just by way of interest, he starts his book on um, why, do the, why do they dress that way. He starts his book. The opening uh, sentence has two words. Dress speaks. And he goes on from there. We just think that's pretty good that he so carefully and so shortly uh, states his, uh, his theme in the first sentence. Um, David Wilkerson was mentioned this morning. Uh, he's a writer, not a plain man, but he's done a wonderful work in New York City, I think. And uh, he's written The Cross and the Switchblade, and I think he's written Run, Baby, Run. Some of those are pretty vivid, and I'm not sure I really recommend them for young people, but it certainly is a story of victory where he went in and, and uh, worked with these gangs that were so hostile and so murderous of each other. And... Uh, he did a lot of teaching there. We already discussed about the reading being true stories. The daily devotionals would be something really worth reading. Um, Still Waters is one that we take. It's a, by mostly Mennonite writers, although not entirely. Our uh, brother Gary Miller, one of you have... Uh, a, a grand, is he grand, grand, uh, grand uh, father or father? 
your dad. Okay, he writes good inspirations. He's a dear brother. But there are others. Many writers in, in the still waters, and they're well worth reading. Um, there was one in that still waters that really was very vivid. And it was about this man that uh, wanted to... Uh, he was a swimmer. And he wanted to go out at night and swim in the pool. I don't know quite what his motive was, but he just wanted to go for a swim at night. And he didn't turn the lights on and he got on the diving board. And The story is also that he had been witnessed to by a Christian and he had, had repeatedly refused and yet he knew the gospel. And he got up on that diving board and uh, he held out his hands to dive and somehow uh, the little light there was reflected his arms in the form of a cross. And then the lights came on. And he said that pool was empty. He was converted right there. It's kind of a vivid story in, that was in still waters. It's one story about how brethren worked together. There was a silo that was full of corn. And it began to lean and they realized it was going to fall. It was going to fall right on the barn. And someone was careful to drive the cows out of the barn, but it did fall and it made a terrible mess. Tons and tons and tons of, of corn were on this barn. And it showed how the brethren came in and with their loaders and they got that restored and got the barn repaired in just a matter of days. And they said, what would it have been in the world? Who, what lawsuits would have come from that? You know, we just have a wonderful heritage of dear brethren who are willing to help each other. My experience in the hospital, Martha and I both volunteer at our local hospital. It's, a, it's a, an Adventist hospital, and those people are also concerned that, uh, that men come to believe. I read there. I enjoy reading. Uh, that's the reason I'm kind of enthused about this subject. I really like to read, and I, I do read to the elderly people. They have two units of long-term care. And I go there once a week and read for about an hour in each place. And then I also go into the infusion center where they're hours and hours waiting while they take this infusion for their cancer problems. And I don't always read to them. I, I offer. They don't always accept it, but sometimes they do. And it's a real reward to, to read to them and pray for them. Uh, it's actually, they all have a TV up there, but very few of them use it. I just marvel. They probably have all they want at home. And maybe when you get to the end and you have cancer and you realize you don't have a whole lot of time left, maybe it changes the perspective just a little bit. I'm sure it would if, it, if I were in there. I have some feelings about ministering to people like that, praying for them. I am, try to be very careful that I don't give false hope because I think that's cruel that if you just indicate that they're going to heaven when they've never made their uh, choice for the Savior. And what do you do? I would like some counsel from the old brethren. Maybe this isn't quite the place for it. But I'll tell you one thing I do in the prayer. I say, help this person to see Jesus on the cross suffering for their sins. Suffering for my sins and for your sins because all have sinned and come short. And I can pray for those that are ministering to them. If you have opportunity to minister at hospitals, that would be my advice. I certainly don't feel that I have all the answers in that. As I've ministered there in those long-term units, it's been impressed upon me. The last of Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, starts out, Remember thou thy Creator in the days of thy youth, Ere the evil day cometh, and the, words, and the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. These elderly people can't make choices anymore. They're through. But you're at the place where you can make choices today. You have that opportunity, and don't put it off until you get in a nursing home. There's so much here, and I know we have to be brief. You can read the rest of this. Um, read, read elementary books so that you can get used to reading well. Read to the younger children. 
become familiar with the pronunciation signs. I'd like to spend some time on that, but I can't. Practice difficult Bible names. First Chronicles 1 to 4. If you know the, the pronunciation marks, the long uh, vowels and the short vowels and all the, uh, that, you won't have trouble, but it does take practice. But you might practice on First Chronicles 1 to 4. Speed reading and scanning. I have one interesting. I just have to tell you why I put this in here. Can you lift a cow if you lift the calf each day as it grows? I had a brother that tried that. He thought, if I can lift this calf every day, I'll soon be able to lift the cow. Well, it doesn't work that way. You know that it doesn't. And, uh, but I had to think that what we're about here is almost the opposite of that. The cow, what we're undertaking, the reading, the learning to read, is not growing. What's growing is our ability to read. And that's the opposite of what we're talking about there. And I hope that ability will continue to grow so that you can be a better and better reader. I have some recommended books here. I won't really take time to go over them, but you can read those. I want to read one more thing, and uh, I hope it won't run us too far over time. But I have a, a reading here that was written by my Uncle James, and it's called The Baptizing. I'll close with this. It's a couple of pages. These are fairly long pages, but this is the account of my father's baptism. And there are things like this that make very interesting reading. Uncle James is a very good descriptive writer. And I think you'll agree when I read this. It's the, the account of, of the baptism of my father, Joseph I. Cover, written by his brother, Uncle James. And the setting is Michigan, and the date is 1907. We were taught in our home never to speak lightly of sacred things. The seriousness of baptism was impressed on us early in life. Baptisms were high spots in church life. All who could went, of course. Usually it took place in some pasture, in a stream or lake. This time, the Lord, being merciful, had shown our brother Joseph, the oldest of seven children, his need of a Savior. And this was the day of his baptism. He had wept as he confessed his need in the family worship circle. As I, his junior by eight years, had always idolized him as my big brother, I could not understand why he thought that he was so bad. I had always thought otherwise. A small boy's admiration, a big brother always watched and was ready for encouragement. When he was chosen to stack straw at the end of the old-time thresher, the small boy was no doubt the more proud of the two. When the straw carrier broke and big brother called them to stop, and one of the men said, Bless the boy! It seemed wonderful to have such an important brother. Then there were cold nights when we laid spoon fashion in bed to keep warm. Here I was drilled in the alphabet and later in the multiplication tables. Our papa liked to see us together and planned accordingly. Big brother cut the wood. I carried it in. He led the animals to water while I pumped. I drove for him while he cultivated. He was always a ready doctor for all my small ills. Sitting in the family circle while he wept, we children all felt shook up inside. I'm sure we all felt the same. If he had sinned, how about us? However, if we were all we were all praying children. We prayed at bedtime, kneeling at our beds, each taking turns according to age, repeating the time honored prayer of childhood. Now I lay me down to sleep, and did not question matters we felt were the concern of our parents. A sweet sacredness settled upon our home. Our church group was admittedly strict. We knew something of the past struggles to get away from infant baptism. The brethren would ask the applicant for baptism, Is this your choice? The church rules were given and accepted. Individual and group responsibilities were taken on as a matter of course. We children instinctively grew in his experience. We knew his sincerity. He was starting his manhood in open acceptance of the Christian faith with the Bible as the inspired word of God, knowing too he was setting an example for the rest of us. There's nothing quite like Christian baptism outdoors in a flowing stream. We who have had this experience should be truly thankful. Of course, all who have taken this step of faith in following their Lord should treasure these precious moments associated with their first love and obedience to Christ. Someone had to go ahead to open and close the gate where we left the road to follow some old half-forgotten trail through the bushes. Clouds of mosquitoes waited in the shadows, and one tried to tie his horse in the sunlight. Turtles and frogs blissfully sunning on the riverbank and fallen logs promptly dived into the depths below. 
Noisy birds quieted to watch from some aerial perch. Grazing cows kept a respectful distance, the bells on their necks telling their whereabouts. A distant dog's bark showed that he knew something unusual was happening. Small boys looked for flat stones to skip on the water, but were quickly restrained. There was singing, perhaps the old favorite, in all my Lord's appointed ways my journey I'll pursue. Hinder me not, ye must love saints, much love saints, for I must go with you. Portions of Matthew 18 were read and commented upon, and then all knelt in prayer down by the riverside. The baptizer first waded in to find a suitable place, pushing in a stick to mark the place. The applicant was then immersed, according to Bible formula. There were tears of joy and fond embraces on the shore of the river. Time seemed to stand still, as eternity's values were written with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. The die was cast, and there was no turning back. Happy hearts rejoiced with the angels in heaven. There's joy among the angels, and their harps with gladness ring when a sinner comes repenting, bending low before the king. Tiny water skaters, their thread-like knees akimbo, came back to glide over the sacred spot. Wild things resumed their daily activities. Soon the last buggy left, and there was nothing to show we had been there but our tracks on the shore. In much appreciation, James D. Cover from Michigan Memories. Well, I should have had more to conclude, but I just commend you to God and encourage you in your reading of the valuable things. May the Lord bless you. I just, I just want to say that brother leads by example. He he told us some ideas, some things, some real practical features of of the how tos of reading. That can be kind of intimidating, but I believe that this brother has shown us by his example that it can be done if you have a desire, if your interest is there. But didn't he hold the standard high? Praise God for that. And not to lift the brother up, but I just am thankful that he's not saying, hey, go up there where I've never been. Lead, he's leading us by example. And by being a well-read man, he's interesting to listen to. Wouldn't we all agree? So, I just want you to read a little portion here for me from Ezra chapter 10. If you would just start in right verse 30 here and read to the end. He's got some names for me here. <laughs> okay. And one, and of the sons of Pehath Moab, Adna, and Kelal, Beniah, Maasiah, Madaniah, Manasseh, and of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malchiah, Shemiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashem, Matini, Mattatha, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. 